0: God has said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. I am glad that holiness is what he calls us to and that which he is working in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Holiness is not something we produce on our own, but holiness is God's work in us, both the willing and the doing of his good pleasure. And one day that work of holiness will be complete when we're with the Lord. But now we're in a pilgrimage. We're in this world. And God has given us assignments to accomplish as a people of God. We've talked something about that in the month of January. As we entered a new decade in the ministry of our church, these are also probably the most ten critical years in the history of our nation. I don't think that that's an overstatement. Because of the crossroads that we find ourselves in, in this nation and in the Western culture, I believe that the next ten years are the most critical in the history of our nation. While focusing on a new vision for our ministry as a local church and retooling ourselves with perhaps some new methods adapted to the 90s, We must be careful not to lay aside some of the old truths that are essential if, in fact, we want the blessing of God upon us in this new decade. One such truth, which we looked at last week, is the truth of repentance. That is, changing one's mind or one's way of thinking. As that word is applied to Christians, and we saw last week that indeed it is applied to Christians, that we need to be a repentant people, repentance is a mindset that says, I will change my mind and agree with God whenever I'm convicted of God to do so. That is, whenever God turns the light on, our spirit, and we sense there's something that is not right with God, we have a mindset that says immediately, I must change. And we don't allow our minds or our souls to become hardened. But we change, we are repentant. The danger, of course, is that sin is not truthful, as it allures us. Sin says to us, if you do this, if you involve yourself in that, if you will use this motive, if you will make that your goal, then I promise you, says sin, that you will be pleased. You will have this result or that result. That's what sin says. But sin is a liar. Sin may point to some genuine pleasure or some human achievement that we would desire that it could give us, but sin always veils the final result. It always does. Because the final result of sin, even when it's temporally or temporarily full of pleasure, the final result of sin is always destruction. So sin is deceitful, and it will deceive and harden our hearts if we aren't alert, if we don't maintain a repentant mindset. The writer of Hebrews warns about this in the third chapter of that book, when he says, Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of of sin you see sin not only deceives but it subtly hardens the heart almost imperceptibly without one actually noticing that the hardening is taking place it happens and that heart that once was soft and palable, pliable in the, the uh, hands of God rather that heart becomes stiffer and harder until finally, if sin has its way, that heart is fixed. The writer of Hebrews warns about an earlier generation to whom that happened. It was the generation of the Jews who came out of Egypt who hardened their hearts against God in the wilderness. And as a result of that, God says... They shall not enter my rest. And they didn't. They died in the wilderness, not inheriting the land that God had promised to them. And so they came short because of the deceitfulness of sin. You see, sin is not a benign deviation. But sin actually is a malignant cancer that grows and drains the spiritual power from one's life. It changes the heart attitude against God and finally will bring one to destruction. James talks about this in the last chapter of his uh, epistle, the last two verses, an interesting way for him to conclude. Often the Apostle Paul, when he would write, would conclude with a benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, or some other upbeat note, But, but James gives a warning. He says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth. Now notice, first of all, he's talking to brethren. He is not talking to unsaved people. And he says, if any among you strays from the truth. That is, wanders away into sin. And one turns him back. There's the word convert that we looked at briefly last week. And one converts him One causes him to turn around and go the other direction. James says, in that case, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. Now you say, does that mean hell? Well, in some contexts it does. Whenever you find the word death, you have to discover what is it talking about. Is it spiritual death? Is it physical death? Is it some other kind of death? He's talking here about Physical death, as I understand this text. That is the discipline of God. He says, Let him know that if he turns a sinner from his way of error, that he will save that soul from death. That is the discipline of God and will cover a multitude of sins. Sin is not benign, it is malignant. And the only answer to sin is a repentant heart. A heart that is always ready to change when enlightened by the Holy Spirit. A heart that says, There is no territory that is protected. God has access to all of me. The heart that says, There is no room that is out of bounds to God's inspection. The heart that says, I will allow no callous to develop on me a heart that says, I will be sensitive toward God. I will have a near listening to the voice of God and a will determined to be right with God. And so I think it's appropriate for us to ask ourselves this morning, am I right with God? Am I right with God? Have I been repentant? When God has turned the spotlight on my life, have I responded positively by changing my mind, resulting in changes in my life. Am I a repentant Christian? Repentance is not possible apart from brokenness over sin. I see brokenness over sin involving several things. In the first place, it involves recognizing sin for what it is. That is, I I don't allow myself to excuse it. I don't allow myself to play with it. I don't allow myself to taste it by rolling it around in my mouth. I don't allow sin to be protected. But rather I bring it out into the open in my life and I recognize it for what it is. then I must also go beyond that. I must then perceive how that sin affects God. I must understand how that sin affects God and others around me. I must see what that sin does to me. I must understand the grief that it causes. I must understand the sorrow that it brings to the heart of God. I must understand that it brings me to destruction, that it will destroy my life and my effectiveness for God. And once I understand all of that, then it will bring me to the final step, which is to respond with sorrow over it, a sorrow that leads to repentance. Paul talks in Second Corinthians chapter 7 about that kind of sorrow, suggesting that there is a sorrow that does not bring one to Repentance. It's merely a superficial kind of sorrow. For example, the kind of sorrow that says, I'm sorry I got caught. Boo-hoo. And tears are shed because one has been found out. But it's not the kind of sorrow that brings repentance. The change of mind resulting in a change of direction to one's life. I first need to recognize sin for what it is and then understand what it does to God and what it does to me and what it does to others. And the only response I can have if I go that far is to sorrow over it and be brought to repentance, brokenness. Is your heart broken over sin? Sometimes it's easier for us to be broken over the sin of others than it is our own sin. Sometimes it's easier for us to sorrow and to grieve over what others are doing or not doing than what we ought to be doing or not doing. As we enter a new decade, an exciting decade with lots of potential, we must also recognize that sin abounds. And it comes to us in nearly every shape and form. Repentance as a mindset, as a way of life, will keep us walking in the light of God and not falling into the darkness of the devil. Repentance is one of those old truths that we have to hang on to. But I want to move ahead this morning to another one. Another old truth for a, a decade that is before us, filled with exciting potential for God. If we want to see that potential realized, here is a truth, an old truth, that we must get a hold of and never release, and it is that truth of dependence upon God. The truth of dependence upon God, I invite you to turn with me to a verse in John chapter 15, our Lord himself speaking. And he says to us, Abide in me, and I in you. You recall that he compares us here to branches that partake in the vine, the true one, he himself. And he says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Notice the totality of that statement. He makes no exception. He doesn't say you can do most things apart from me. He doesn't say you can do a few things apart from me. He says you can do no things apart from me. Now obviously there are some things we can do. We can go through the motions of life. We can accomplish things. We can accumulate things. We can affect the lives of other people for good or for ill. There are many things we can do. But one thing we cannot do is to bear spiritual fruit that's eternal, apart from Jesus Christ. So when you enter into that realm of what counts forever, in that realm there is nothing that we can do apart from Him. We are dependent upon the vine to produce in and through us the fruit that will be pleasing to him. As a church, we can go into this next decade and accomplish a lot. There are things that we can do that may even attract the attention of other people, or which we ourselves will find very fulfilling or pleasing to ourselves. We may get written up in a newspaper good or bad. There are lots of things we can do, but if we want to do things that are going to count forever, that are going to pass the test of the judgment seat of Christ, then we must hang on to this old truth that we are dependent upon Jesus Christ. and We cannot do these things in ourselves and in our own strength. This is one of the most difficult things for us to comprehend and practice in our culture, isn't it? Because in many ways we have the impression, at least, that we don't need the Lord. We can go out and get a loan, we can use a charge card, we can call upon other people, we can get in the car and go somewhere. There's something we can do ourselves to respond to our crisis rather than have to depend upon God. Maybe that's why it is that God often puts us in places where we are completely bound up and can't do anything. So that hopefully we'll come to this truth that ultimately we must depend upon Him. We can't get along without the Holy Spirit. I think that we have bought into this humanistic lie of our own autonomy. Humanism, the religion of man worshiping himself, teaches that man is autonomous, that he is independent of others and certainly of God. Now, we would not say that. We would never put that into a statement of faith for our church. If you were asked to write out what you would believe, likely you would never put down, I am independent of God. But the fact is, though we are not professing humanists, we are practicing humanists. Because we tend to do so much apart from God. And we have the wealth and the ingenuity and the freedom to do so in our culture. There are other cultures where that doesn't exist as readily as it does here. Where people are very poor, where they have nothing, they have no resources to draw on. For them to think of themselves as independent would be very difficult. But on the other hand, for us to think of ourselves as dependent is very difficult. The fact is that we will make a mess every time that we fail to depend upon God. Ultimately, our efforts must fail if they are efforts apart from His enablement. Perhaps the greater curse, though, is not failure, but success. God allowing us to succeed in our own efforts apart from Him. Perhaps that is the greater curse. God has not designed us To live our lives in a vacuum apart from His direct involvement. He has created us so that we might live by faith. That's why we have a spirit. That's why there is this immeasurable distance between ourselves and mere animals. It's interesting the Bible doesn't say that we are created a little above the animals. It says that we are created a little below the angels. We have the capacity to know God and to relate to God and to trust God, to depend upon Him. That's how God has created us. That's how He wants to relate to us. A relationship of faith, dependence. And it is that faith or dependence that makes His involvement in our lives a reality. The writer of Hebrews, as he goes back through his uh, chart of Old Testament figures, talks about a number of them, as you know, in the 11th chapter. And if you were to sum up the 11th chapter just in a verse, I think verse 6 would, would pretty well be the summary. It says there, "...without faith it is impossible to please him." For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. If we seek God, it's because we need God. If we don't need God, we don't seek him. The seeker is one who senses his need, his dependence upon God. And the writer of Hebrews says, The one who senses this dependence is one who will be rewarded by God. Because that dependence is faith. And again, it's, it's a statement of totality. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's not just pretty hard, but it's impossible to please God. Because, you see, God is well pleased, God rewards when there is faith. Back in verse 2, it says, For by it, faith, the men of old gained approval. In verse 39, he concludes the chapter with basically the same thought. And all these having gained approval through their faith. So what is it that brings God's involvement in our lives, that brings God's reward to our lives? It is our attitude of dependence, our trust, our faith. We have to understand that faith is not passive Faith is not merely saying, I won't do anything, God has to do everything. That is not faith. Faith is not an inactive mindset. But faith is hearing what God says and then taking action on the basis of that. You see, faith is active. It's potent. Faith causes us to respond in some way. It produces within us. This last week, our staff was able to get away for a day and a half retreat together. On this occasion, we took our families. It was a wonderful experience. We went to Camp Forest Springs, which is the camp that we're cooperating with now in our our ministry. I'm excited about that. It is a first-class operation from top to bottom, side to side, is just a class operation. And to some of us will be there throughout this year in various kinds of activities, including family camp, a little bit later on in the summer. So you'll have a chance to see it for yourself, but in the summer you won't have the opportunity to go cross-country skiing or downhill skiing or tubing, the latter of which I prefer, because it's so easy. You just get on the tube and you're dragged to the top of the hill with the tow rope and then you slide down, it's so easy. Now, you take John Benham, for example, he liked to go downhill. In fact, was this your first time, John? Out there on the skis, it, it looked, no, it didn't look like it. He really did well. <laughs> he was coming down a hill and it was, uh, it was a steep hill, frankly. It was pretty steep and there was not fresh snow on it. And Pastor Bartlett was just along beside him. They were skiing together, and all of a sudden, Pastor Bartlett took a left turn, a real sharp left turn, and John could do nothing, and it was uh, humorous to those of us watching. I'm sure it wasn't humorous to be involved, but there were skis and legs and arms flying up into the air and snow, and, and they lit, and John came back with an injured right arm. I was surprised to see him leading the singing this morning. But uh, I didn't go downhill. I decided to go cross-country, and I got my youngest son out there, and, uh, as well as some others in the family, but the two of us were together on particularly one occasion. They have several miles of trails, far too many miles. Uh, <clears throat> but we took a shorter path, and as we were going along, um, we'd been out about an hour by that time, and my son said to me, uh, Which way is back to camp? I said, just follow me. You see, they had signs up with arrows. So I knew where I was going. And we kept going. Five minutes went by, and my son said to me, this isn't the way back. And I panted out the words, trust me. That's about all I could say at that point. Trust me. And he did. He did. And eventually we got back to camp. And as, as I experienced it, I thought to myself, "How many times have I been out on the trail of life, not knowing for sure where I was, panting for my breath, and I've said to God, "Which is the way out of here?" And he said, "Just follow me." And a little bit later, as I get tireder and more weary, I say, this isn't the way out. And he says, trust me. And inevitably, we got out. There's a lesson there for all of us, folks. There's an old truth that we need to get a hold of. It's the truth that we are dependent upon God. and Wherein we find in ourselves that streak of independence... That stubbornness of heart. That questioning of God. We need to go back to point number one and repent. And then come back to point number two and say, Lord, I'm following. I'm trusting. Lord, I am dependent. Larnell Harris puts it this way in one of the songs that you hear frequently these days. It's not in trying but trusting. It's not in running, but resting. It's not in wanting, but praying, that we find the strength of the Lord. Maybe you're one of those of God's children today running hard. You're trying your best and you want something bad. But if we want God's involvement in our lives, if we want to be rewarded by him, then we need to trust and to rest. We need to pray. And when we do that, God delights to reward. It says here in this same chapter that he is not ashamed to be called the God of those who will trust him. Isn't that great? Oh, I don't want God to be ashamed, to be called my God. I want to be a dependent child and trust Him. You may feel today that God is calling you to do something you can't do. Maybe it's an issue of some service that God is calling you to. And He has said to you, my child, this is what I have for you. This is the way, walk in it. And you look at that and you say, oh Lord, I can't do that. Lord, that's beyond me. I can never hold out for that. Lord, I, I can never accomplish that. And he says to you, just trust me, just take it a step at a time. When you're out there in the back of the trails, cross-country skiing, and you think about how far you've got to go to get back to camp, you can start crying. My son did, and I almost did a couple of times. I mean, you can think about how far you've got to go to get to that goal, and it just seems like you can't go any further. You've already phoned up muscles you haven't talked to for a long time, and they're answering. And you say, there's no way I can make it. How do you do it? Well, you just keep putting those feet out there, keep using those skis, eventually you get there. How do you get to that goal God is pointing out? Just a step at a time. Trust me, he says. That's what he said to Moses, wasn't it? So he met with him in the backside of the wilderness, he said, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses said, Lord, not me. That's too much for me. I can't, that's not my gift. God says, look, that's what I'm calling you to do. Moses, trust me. Who who do you think made your mouth? Who do you think made you just the way you are, Moses? Who do you think has prepared you for these 80 years? For these 40 years? These 80 years? Who's going to use you for the next 40? Moses, trust me. There are some of you that are at a point of decision in your life, and you're saying to God, Lord, I don't know. The reason for that is that you're looking at that goal in light of how you feel and what you think about yourself. You're, you're trusting yourself. And God is saying, trust me. Because when you give out, I'm there to carry you on. Trust me. It's an old truth, isn't it? But it's a truth that we cannot let go of. Because God may be calling you and me, not only as individuals, but as a church, to enter into some things that will cause us to say, oh my goodness, how in the world can we do this? God says, trust me. Trust me. We must not limit ourselves to those actions, those involvements, those commitments that we perceive we can do. Because if we do, that's all we'll ever accomplish, what we can do. We need to have our ears open and our eyes opened to hear and to see what God says. And when God says, there... It will always be a stretch for us. God is never going to point out something that we can do in ourselves because He doesn't want us to be reinforced again that we can make it independent of Him. He's always going to point out something to us that will stretch us. Because that's the way that we learn dependence upon Him. Our need today is for a fresh and filling of God in this area of our lives. And if today you're one of God's saints just trying hard and struggling and bogged down and overcome and wondering and questioning, God says, my child, have you hit bottom yet? Are you worn out enough yet trying in your own strength? Are you yet finished being independent? If so, now trust. Declare your dependence, and I will show you what I can do. And I will reward you, and what you do will last forever. And it will get my mark of approval at the end of the road. Let's pray. I don't know where this message from the Lord may catch you today. Maybe you are quite aware of your dependence, and you're walking by faith, not by sight. Praise God for that, my friend. But I have a hunch there are not a few of us here who are out there on the trail, weary and wondering how we'll ever make it back. Or God has pointed out something to us that seems so far beyond that we have a big question mark in our lives. God, do you really know what you're doing? Today it's time to say, Lord, I declare my dependence. I'm weary, I've tried, I've been running, but it's all in my strength. And I am coming to you to declare that I need you. And I trust you. Would you do that right where you're seated? Make this old truth real in your life. Oh, understand it will be challenged, maybe even yet today. For if Satan can keep you from really trusting He doesn't have to worry about anything else you might attempt because without faith it's impossible to please God. So he will try to keep faith from being active in your life. Declare your dependence today and ask God to make it a real, daily, living principle within you. If that is your declaration to God today, would you indicate that by the lifting of your hand? I'm asking you to do something physical, just to reinforce in your heart a spiritual decision. Lift your hand to God, saying, God, today is my declaration of dependence. Yes. The scores hands. God bless you. Oh, remember, friend, he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Father, I pray that faith, dependence, trust will become the principle by which we live our lives every day. We acknowledge to you the temptations, especially in our culture, To live by sight. To live by what we can do for ourselves. Forgive us. And bring us to that point of brokenness about our independence that we repent. And begin to live as you want us to live. Like branches on the vine. In Jesus' name. Amen. let